Welcome to Insights, the podcast of Forerunners of America. And we are here every time to warn the nation from a biblical perspective and to help you respond in faith. We want to make a difference and we want to walk confidently with Christ through the days in which we're living. Now, before we jump into our topic today, which is the heart of a forerunner and all kinds of things connected to that, I do want to mention again that we need you, if you're subscribed at YouTube, to subscribe to Forerunners of America, all one word, type it into the search bar there at Rumble, and please subscribe to our channel over at Rumble. As you might recall from our last podcast, I mentioned that we had another video taken down by YouTube, and we don't think we're going to be on YouTube that much longer. At least that's a serious possibility. So please go to Rumble. Please uh, subscribe to Forerunners of America. The, the other thing you can do as well is you can go to forerunnersofamerica.org and you can click on connect and then you will get links to Forerunners videos and materials sent right to your inbox. So that's a good option as well. Well, now with that said, I want to uh, welcome back to the Forerunners of America studio Timothy Zebel, who was with us about a year ago. And Timothy has written another book. Uh, it's called The Heart of a Forerunner. And we just want to share a, a bunch of this in a, by way of conversation today on this podcast. We just want to share uh, some of the things that, that are on Timothy's heart as well as my heart and uh, just see where this conversation goes. So to begin, though, this is super important um, uh, in terms of a scriptural idea theme that's often not talked about in the body of Christ. So to begin, I'm going to put up on the screen Luke chapter 1, verse 17. It's talking about John the Baptist, and I want to read this one verse so we can start to get our minds and hearts wrapped around the heart or the calling of a forerunner. So here we go. It is he, John the Baptist, who will go as a forerunner before him, Jesus the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Okay, Timothy, so uh, just tell us a little bit, like, how did you um, even first get inclined to start addressing this, this book that you wrote, Heart of a Forerunner? Okay, obviously, we have John the Baptist being called as a forerunner, but I'm sure there was more to it than just that. So please share a bit with us. Yeah, well, honestly, this uh, book is kind of the fruit of untold hours of conversation between you and I. Uh, All right. I first got introduced to this idea of John the Baptist as a forerunner from more this perspective by you. And uh, over the years, been digging in God's word and discussing with you and others on the side and, uh, you know, unpacking what does that actually mean? Uh, I've always been interested in being a cultural influencer. Uh, and so marrying some different uh, images or, or different pictures, different vocabulary uh, with some of those areas of interest that I'd had for many years and just kind of bringing them together and realizing we're saying the same thing uh, with different language. Uh, and so just unpacking it, maybe in some ways uh, in language, it's a little bit more consistent with what scripture uses. Yeah, amen. We want to do that. It, you know, it, that reminds me of um, uh, some time ago, uh, you know, we had launched Forerunners of America. And um, this person said to me, wow, Forerunners of America, that's a really cool name. And it's like, I'm thinking like, yeah, thank you for that. I'm glad you like it. But then he never asked me what it means. What do you do? Uh, there's a lot of implications to this, isn't there? 
And, uh, and also with that is it's not only John the Baptist, but we'll get into that in a second, I think, but the, there's a, a situation here in the scriptures as we unpack this today, that God may be calling many of us to be forerunners. And so there's that whole level. But before we talk a little bit more about John the Baptist, when you think of other forerunners in the Bible, like who do you think of? Well, we've got forerunners going from Genesis with Noah all the way to Revelation with John. Uh, but honestly, uh, we could even put Jesus in the mix. Uh, that Jesus was a forerunner. Hebrews actually uses the term forerunner, maybe in a slightly different context than the way uh, we're meaning it here. But still, Jesus was one who went before God, being God, of course, himself, but before the Father, uh, to prepare the people for what the Father was about to accomplish. Right. And that's probably a good point just to stop and, and define forerunner. A forerunner is simply someone or something that comes before someone or something else. And so going back to John the Baptist, we have a forerunner who is um, going before Jesus' first coming, or at least uh, his, uh, his revealing of being the Messiah. He's going before that to prepare the people. By, by the way, how do you see... Um, uh, in Genesis with Noah, how do you see him as a forerunner? Well, Noah is said to be a preacher of righteousness. Uh, so God is uh, God is bringing judgment upon the world, and Noah for years. It depends on how you want to interpret uh, some of the passages as to how long. Uh, but for a very prolonged period of time, he's building an ark. He's building God's means of salvation. Uh, for all who are willing to come onto John uh, onto God's side, uh, and in Peter we find that he's a preacher of righteousness. So he's calling people to repent. He's calling people to uh, turn from the rebellion that is provoking God's judgment and join God's side by coming into the ark with him. Awesome. You know, um, actually, uh, we'll probably focus a little bit more here on John the Baptist, and then a whole other bunch of other things coming up here. But Noah really has a strong message for us. I mean, uh, he's he's giving this warning message, like you said, because he knows what's coming. And the scriptures teach us what's ultimately coming here with Jesus' second coming. And at the end of our lives, before we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, like we need to help people understand from the scriptures what's coming and give that similar urgent warning. Um, so... It, very interesting there that we see the first one uh, that we identify here as, as, as Noah. It's just powerful. Um, and to think that he gave the message and he left the results to God. You know, the, um, as, as, as we know from the scriptures, there were only himself and the seven people in his family that were willing to get on that ark. And for today, we're hoping that there can be a much greater harvest, obviously, and much greater response. So turning now to John the Baptist, anything stick out to you about his life and ministry that, again, can just help illustrate what a forerunner is like from the scriptures? Yeah, well, we think of John the Baptist's message as repent, uh, and repent fundamentally is obey, obey God's laws, obey what God has commanded. Uh, why, though? Because God is doing something new. The kingdom is coming, and when God arrives— a holy God arriving into a culture that is embracing sin doesn't work. God's arrival is going to burn away uh, that which is impure. 
And so only those who are obedient, only those who are righteous will be able to stand and participate with God in this new kingdom that he's bringing forth. And so John's John's going forward ahead of what God is accomplishing here and warning. He's saying, look, you guys don't have your, your lives right. You're not prepared for what God is about to do. And so get your act together. If you don't, the consequences are dire. Uh, baptism with fire, acts at the root of the tree, okay? the, the judgment of God that will purge out wickedness. And of course, John the Baptist isn't just do, you know, speaking this in very general terms. The people respond by saying, well, what does this mean? Like, if, if, if we're actually going to change our lifestyle, what does that look like? And John helps them by saying, well, Give an extra tunic. If you have an extra tunic, don't charge too much money when you're collecting taxes. He's giving them practical advice uh, for what it looks like to actually live out God's commands in the culture. So we could probably say that John was a cultural influencer. Would you agree? Absolutely. Yes, I'm smiling because I, I know that Tim is the one actually in one of our many conversations that he alluded to that he was one who said, you know, I think fundamentally here we're talking about cultural influencers. And so anyway, I, going back to John, though, what I love about John's example is he's turning the hearts back to the prophecy of Malachi that Jesus affirms in Matthew 11, that, that if you can accept it, John was the Elijah to come. And that a turning of the hearts of the fathers back to the sons. And it's all this idea of turning, repenting. All of this is going on in John's ministry. He has huge crowds. He has no marketing campaign, no Facebook followers or anything. But the point is, is that he's uh, he's got the, the power, the presence of God on him as he's giving this message to turn wholeheartedly back to the, the living God. And when I see him, I see him really preaching in two ways. One um, is is this whole idea of of repenting, which changes your heart and even your family. It's so clearly there that he wants to be. John is this cultural influence influencer helping families change, which also prepares for the Messiah. So we have this whole level, uh, but then also he's. Um, He's not, he's not only calling people to repent, but he's got this wonder to his message. Like one is coming after me whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. I, he's got, I baptize with water, but one comes after me who will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. It's like, who is this guy that's coming? There's this wonder that's going on here, right? So we've got the, the very practical. You need to turn to God. You need to repent. You need to humble yourself before God and get in that right relationship. And then you also have the wonder of this amazing thing that's about to happen. And I think if we're going to become forerunners today, I think it's wise for us to also carry both of those kinds of things, the great hope, the, this wonder of the gospel, the wonder of Jesus Christ, the wonder of who he is in the return. But then also the very practically, we have to humble ourselves and we have to turn back to God. And of course, for the purpose of changing the hearts of people, I mean, John the Baptist has said, is prophesied, he's going to turn the hearts of the people. And so uh, fundamentally, I'm sure we'll get into this later, but fundamentally being a cultural influencer is changing people's hearts by changing the way they think about moral issues or about God's instructions. Right. Exactly. Of course, uh, all this with John the Baptist, uh, I, I, I probably should note here, while I may have written this book, uh, I recruited an expert to produce a forward for this book. 
that focuses particularly on John the Baptist. And so I couldn't think of anyone who is more uh, well-versed and studied on John the Baptist as a forerunner and what that looks like and what that means, what the implications are to really capture and define a forerunner than, of course, Dave Warren. And so uh, okay, you unpack totally... this in an amazing way in the book. It's, I, I, I can't speak highly enough of the forward you wrote. Uh, if anyone's interested in diving a little bit deeper and seeing more application, well, check out your forward. Well, I'm totally shifting the topic right now. This is getting uncomfortable. So moving right along, um, we also see Peter as um, uh, as a forerunner as he unfolds, as his life unfolds in the church and in launching the church. And he's saying in Acts chapter two, he, he is saying at the end of that sermon that he gives at Pentecost, the, the launching of, of the church as we know it today, Peter is saying, save yourselves from this wicked generation, meaning come to faith in Jesus and turn to him and all these forerunners things. And here we have, have uh, Peter playing that role as well. Um, so not only John the Baptist, but we can, we have all these others too, that we've just summarized, but, but Tim, I do want to shift now pretty dramatic shift here. So uh, there's a lot of things we'll get to hear about practically being a forerunner. But you begin the book with uh, with two major sections on nations. Why, why did you do that? Well, God has a collective effort and an individual effort in what he's doing among the hearts of his people. Uh, and uh, we as Americans love the individualistic mindset. Uh, if anything, we are a little too focused on it. Uh, we're, really, the Jews were more collective focused. Uh, and so when we look throughout scripture, a lot of how God is interacting with his people is on a collective level. And so God ends up saying a lot about uh, why nations exist and what role they play in his redemptive purposes. Uh, but this Tim, isn't some... before, you, before you go on, I think there's a port shift here when you talk about, because you talk, just talked about Hebrew culture. It wasn't so much necessarily about the me, like an American mindset. It wasn't so much about the me, it was about the we. And that we could be... How is my whole family uh, uh, doing or standing before God? Or how is uh, a, a community, a city, or the whole nation, those kinds of things. But anyway, anyway, keep going. Yeah, absolutely. So this isn't something we usually talk about uh, in our churches and in our culture. Uh, and so I uh, don't feel as if uh, many of us necessarily could define what God's purpose for nations are. In fact, how many of us even think that there still is a role for nations? I mean, now that salvation is an individual thing, then is there any purpose for nations? Tim, and yet Tim, we find Tim. they actually show up in eternity. Right. And I want you to carry through that thought, but I just want to be honest here with our our listeners. I was one of those people. I was a, I came to Christ, Christ, excuse me, I came to Christ in college. And I didn't think about nations being important to the heart of God until decades after I came to Christ. So I'm not that old. I'm talking about like two or three decades later. But the point is that, wow, the Bible has a lot to say about nations. And I love how uh, you capture that heading um, in, in the book about uh, re the redemptive role of nations. Now, we want to get into that, but we want to first hear your, finish your thought about nations in eternity. What in, what in the world are you talking about? Well, when we get to the millennial kingdom, 
we see there are still nations with kings and governments. Uh, but Jesus is king of kings, lord of lords. Uh, but these other kings that are ruling underneath the lordship of Jesus in this millennial kingdom uh, are said to actually bring their glory into the glory of the nations into the new Jerusalem. And where, and is, that, where that, is that in scripture? Yeah, we see this in Revelation 21. And uh, we get elements of this in the millennial passages and uh, Isaiah and some of these other prophets. Uh, but this idea of the glory of the nations, it's uh, intriguing to me. Uh, because when I stop and you think about, well, what, what is the glory of a nation? Like, what sets a nation apart from another nation? That's, that's, what, that's what its glory is, if you would. You know, the philosophy of the Greeks, uh, the uh, 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 fine arts of the French. Uh, these nations are kind of known for something in particular. And I think the idea here is that which is setting the nation apart and is giving it some sort of glory is, is what we're able to bring forth as offerings uh, to the Lord in the New Jerusalem. That, of course, necessitates that there still be uh, diversity, diversity of lifestyle, diversity of culture, uh, us living out our purpose uh, in a variety of ways uh, underneath human government still uh, collected in nations. So, uh, Timothy, just as we look here at, at nations now, not so much now we're looking off into the future and so forth, but right now throughout history, etc., you have a couple chapters in your book, which by the way, every chapter is really short, which is great to get those nuggets. But I just wanted to ask you related to a couple of these, like the, you have one, the purpose of nations, another chapter that says God troubling nations, like why does God trouble nations? Can you speak into that a bit? Yeah. So we, we find that God has a purpose for nations. Uh, Paul will speak of it when he says, uh, essentially, it is to draw the hearts of people back to God. Uh, nations are birthed, interestingly enough, out of a judgment of God in the Tower of Babel. Uh, but in that judgment is also a mercy that God is, is now using this new, um, this new format, this new structure uh, to draw the hearts of people back to himself. Uh, but how that happens well, it includes, in part, a troubling of nations. Uh, we see it first when God's uh, establishing a nation for himself, and he tells the Israelites, look, if, if you wander away from me, if you decide uh, to ignore my laws, I will draw you back to repentance by using famines, by using wild beasts, by using foreign threats. I'm going to trouble your nation, in other words. Uh, and if you repent, great, I'll bring you back in to the fold, there will be blessings. But if you don't repent, well, I'll increase that. I'll do it again, but this time sevenfold more. And he says, I'll keep doing this until the point that I have to stand against you as an adversary. Uh, and, and so God's means of drawing the hearts of people back to himself involves a, a, a choice, really. He, he says, choose this day you know, blessing and life or curses and death. Uh, you as a nation get to choose your path. Jeremiah will say, uh, well, he'll, he'll tell Jeremiah, if I promise to bless a nation, they turn away from me. Do 
but I won't give them those blessings. And if I promise to curse a nation and they turn back to me, well, I'll I, I'll relent of the curses, relent of the judgment and destruction that I promised. Uh, so the nation gets to choose its own path. Uh, but oftentimes, as humans, uh, we need some encouragement. Uh, we, we'd like to, to think in all of our optimism that we would just naturally choose the obviously good choice, mm-hmm. life or death. Who would choose death? That You would think who on earth would choose death? And yet, uh, scripture is just filled with account after account of humans choosing exactly that. Um, so on our own, we can't be trusted to choose God at all times. And so sometimes we need that correction, that that discipline, if you would. Uh, and God being a good God doesn't just come down with a hammer the moment we stray. Uh, but he in a graduated, as he told the Israelites, in a graduated form, increases disturbances uh, within a nation to trouble them enough that it provokes their spirit to say, something's wrong. How did we get here? And hopefully at that point to realize it's because we've strayed away from God. Amen. It's a redemptive mission that God is on when he's shaking nations. He doesn't start with final judgment. It's There's a, a season of corrective judgments. And Again, going back to to John the Baptist, I'm so like intrigued with how he had such a powerful message. Lives were changing, had that wonder, like I mentioned a bit ago. But then he did have what you just briefly mentioned. And that is, by the way, everybody, the axe is at the root. And he carried this, that look, you're right now, you're in this season. You're not probably happy with, or certainly not happy with Roman occupation, but God has shaken you. This is a great time now to respond humble yourself, because this ultimately, what I think we would say happened in 70 AD, that this judgment is coming. And and John, as a foreigner, always had those aspects of it. Now, circling back a little bit, um, that was pretty intriguing comment that you said, um, based on God's relationship with Israel, that that at some point, and I guess Jeremiah 18 too, when you were highlighting that God can actually become the enemy or adversary of an entire nation. And one place this really sticks out is in Isaiah uh, chapter 63. And this literally can happen as a people. You can find yourselves fighting against God if you've rebelled far enough and long enough. And then I'm starting to think of America, Timothy, and it's like, oh my gosh, God's done this before. He showed us how he interacts with nations. This can be happening to America. So let's just kind of run with this for a little bit and see where it goes. But in your book, you also talk about America being at war with God. Like, help us understand that. That's also a pretty drastic statement, which would put us right now in the category of having God as our enemy. So uh, please, uh, please unpack that a bit. It's hard to believe that a nation that was founded on biblical principles to be a city on the hill, uh, a nation that is still known as a Christian nation, may actually be at war with God. And yet, I argue that that is where we find ourselves. Uh, When we honestly evaluate our nation and our our likely status before God, uh, it's troubling. Uh, there There are surveys Uh, that as shocking as it sounds, it doesn't sound believable. And yet, surveys have concluded 
that probably only about 6% of American, uh, Americans have a biblical worldview when it comes to God. And, and so, so many more, people, many people, many people go to church, like let's say roughly 40% of the people might find themselves in church on a Sunday, but you're saying even of church goers, it's a pretty small uh, demographic that actually have a biblical worldview. Yeah. Among church goers, by far uh, the largest percentage of church goers denominationally who hold to a biblical worldview of, of God's attributes of salvation of the Bible uh, are evangelicals at only 21%, one in five evangelicals. And then it drops off the cliff from there when we move to uh, other major denominations. Uh, one denomination uh, is only 1%. But and if, and if, I, if I remember this um, survey correctly that you're referring to, um, like these were not complicated questions. Like, do you believe that that mankind has a sin problem and the only way of salvation is through Jesus Christ. And it was things like, uh, I guess some people might, I'm trying to remember here, uh, but some people I think uh, that go to church every Sunday believe in reincarnation, which obviously Hebrews 9 teaches the opposite. So anyway, it was pretty basic questions. And yet even on those, uh, many of churchgoers, as you said, even in the evangelical camp, 80% didn't respond with the biblical answer. Yeah, in fact, uh, it was concluded that about 60% of professing born-again Christians believe that Muhammad, Buddha, and Jesus all taught viable paths to God. Now, that is stunning. Unbelievable. Well, okay, that shows where we are, but let's let's just continue here in terms of America's uh, status before God. And, you know, you, you you take a section of your book here to to kind of cover this idea of being at war with God, like any other thoughts on that? Yeah, so so part of why I start here is uh, because if if we don't hold to these biblical truths, well, it has an effect on how we live. Uh, and so we may we may claim the name of Christ, we may claim to be a Christian nation, so forth, but in actuality, we're not living out God's instructions. We're not following God's expressed will and ways. Uh, and uh, increasingly as a nation, uh, we're actually celebrating and flaunting the very sins that provoke God to judge nations in the past. Um, the scripture is filled with examples of the types of sin, the types of moral failures that provoke God to something as extreme as national judgment. And we see things like you know, pride and arrogance, uh, sexual immorality and sexual confusion. Uh, we, we have violence. Uh, we have an oppression uh, and injustice. These are, all, these are all becoming defining elements of our American culture. And, and so you question at some point, where, where, do, we, where do we tip the scale uh, to to provoke God to actually move and stand against us as a nation. And I actually question if it's when we move from just general rebellion, uh, general uh, refusal to follow God's will and ways, uh, to, to an outright confrontation with God, an outright war with God, a deliberate stubbornness of saying we know what is right, we choose not to do it, and we're going to call that which is evil 
good. Uh, and, and at that point, we're fundamentally at war with our creator. And uh, unfortunately, I think a case can be made that we as a nation, if we're not there yet, we're teetering on the edge of being at that point of war with our creator. Like, let's just look in the last 20 or so years of shakings where God was calling America back to himself. And let's just also uh, rhetorically, let me ask the question, like, how did we respond in each of these? Um, we can go back to, of course, to 9-11. Now, there's many things right before this in the previous decades and so forth, but I'm just starting. Let's. What about 9-11? What about uh, the economic meltdown in 2000? And nine really starting there at the last part of 2008 going into 2009. Like these are significant shakings. And I'm just saying rhetorically, uh, how did we humble ourselves? How did we do as, as a, a nation repenting before God, crying out for mercy? But then, of course, we can uh, we can fast forward to, <clears throat> excuse me, to many other things. But just more recently here in the last two and a half years, a little more than that, we've had COVID. Like, how did we do? And I, I, I mean, on that one, I was just very surprised that there didn't seem to be more uh, leadership within the church that was calling on God's people, at least, like meaning within the, the body of Christ, the church, calling on us to humble ourselves, seek his face, repent. Um, so anyway, it's not just that we've had these things happening and God showed us that his, his, um, his anger will uh, not be stayed forever. And he, he, we've already had these shakings and then, but then coupling that in there, like, how did we do in terms of humbling ourselves in response and, re and repenting? Yeah, COVID in particular, uh, not to get off into politics, because I actually uh, tried to avoid that uh, in this book and, and focus on the biblical principles here. Uh, but one of the shocking things to me about COVID is our nation really kind of collectively determined that the church was a, a non-essential institution, uh, which, which blows my mind when you stop and think about it. Faced with, faced with a pandemic where people are staring death in the face and, and they are afraid of their future and they're looking for stability and answers and hope and encouragement, the very things that the church is all about the things that brand the church, answers about our eternal future, hope, encouragement, uh, truth, um, uh, assurance after death. They didn't turn to the church for answers. In the buildup to the pandemic, they ran to Costco and did a run on toilet paper. Hmm. Uh, rather than having churches filled with people seeking answers, people run to the stores and uh, and and grab supplies that are going to make them feel a little bit more prepared, a little bit safer. So you think, okay, well, well, maybe that's kind of exceptional. We move a little bit further into this, and the 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 nation says, uh, we're afraid the churches may spread this. We want churches to shut down. We don't want them to meet together. Uh, okay, you you could maybe make a good case, a good faith case for some of this. You move a little bit further. Uh, and people start saying, well, we don't like what some of the Christians are saying on social media. We think they need to be shut up. Uh, and, and, and we can just keep walking through the COVID pandemic and see that as a nation, we decided uh, that the church wasn't necessary. 
We didn't want the message of the church. And largely, the church got on board and said, okay, well, we're not wanted. We'll, we'll continue the status quo. We'll continue talking about messages that encourage and inspire us and, and other ways that we can live out our faith in the community. And we'll just, we'll just kind of stay away from this COVID thing. Uh, and, and so what, what was, I believe, a troubling of our nation, almost in some ways a disturbance that was at the same time a mercy uh, by God, uh, a, a troubling of our nation that has built into it the ability for people to readily see uh, uh, how far we've strayed from this message of, of putting our faith and trusting God. Uh, I mean, C Chronicles says, you know, when I, God says, when I send disease upon a nation, then if my people humble themselves, repent, seek my faith, that's when I'll heal their nation. Right. Rather than rather than jump on board with that and and see the message, or even as Christians see what God may be trying to do, uh, we doubled down and we put our faith in science, in a vaccine, whatever. We put our faith in other methods. And I think what God does in moments like that is He says, "All right, uh, it's like it's like a a person who's sleeping. You don't unless you're just a horrible person. You don't come in with an air horn by their ear." Right. You, you come in and you 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 in, in a little bit louder voice, call out to them. And when they're non-responsive, maybe you get to a point where you're kind of nudging them. Uh, when when I was uh, when I was on a mission trip, uh, one of the guys on the trip loves to remind me of the story of how uh, I was basically in a coma one morning when he was trying to wake me up for devotions. And he got to the point he was bouncing me on the bed he was shaking me so hard he said i was uh, my body was bouncing several inches <laughs> above the bed back and forth as he's hollering at me to wake up and somehow i still managed to sleep through it and oh in some goodness. ways that's kind of the state of our nation god started out with these gentle nudges increasing his uh intensity and now we we we're we're getting that point where he's like having to really shake us and holler out to us. But what do you do after that? I mean, if you can't wake someone up at that point, then you give up on them generally. And in some senses, if if God can't alert us to our need to repent uh, with increasing difficulties, what's the point that the difficulties are so extreme, so obvious that God finally says, all right, this is the end. You're either going to wake up this time, you're going to relent of these cultural idols you're holding on to, or I'm going to shake you so hard this time that those idols are just going to collapse. And if you don't relinquish those cultural idols you're holding on to, you as a nation will collapse with them. So you, what you're attached to is how it's going to turn out. We're either attached to Christ or we're attached to cultural idols and these kinds of things one way or the other. We're going to either go through this with Christ um, as our, as truly our Lord, or we're going to get shaken to the point where we fall with, uh, with the culture, with the nation, and so forth. Very, very sobering. Okay, so uh, Timothy, uh, we need to make another turn here, and that would be. So if that's the condition of our nation, where God has done a bunch of these shakings, uh, then how, 
between now and, and like a, a final judgment, uh, what John called again is the axis at the root between that time frame. So when John said that we're roughly 40 years, that they could make adjustments, changes, so forth. In other words, be cultural influencers. Another big theme in your book is becoming a cultural influencer. So what would you recommend that we're, we do now to become a cultural influencer? Because uh, this is obviously at the heart of, of being a forerunner, but also we do have the time now. We're, America's still here, right? We can make a difference. So just maybe do a flyover for us uh, because of time, but do a flyover for us of, of this big section of your book on being a cultural influencer. Yeah, I, we have time. There's still opportunity for change. So uh, we look at God's warnings to nations in the past. Uh, oftentimes they were given well in advance. I mean, we've got 40, 50, 60 years oftentimes between the prophets putting forth the warning and the judgment actually coming. Uh, but interestingly enough, when we look at Nineveh, Nineveh is the capital city of Assyria. Uh, Jonah goes and he doesn't, he doesn't say, look, if you don't do this, judgment's coming. No, instead he just says, judgment's coming. And people responded by getting on God's side, humbling themselves, repenting, pleading out for mercy. And the response it was, God says, essentially, well, judgment's no longer necessary because the purpose of judgment has already been fulfilled now. You are coming back to me. And it staves off judgment for 150 years. Uh, now, eventually, they go back to their old ways and judgment does come. But we had a 150-year span there where judgment was delayed. And so I, I believe that uh, we should not have a, a doom and gloom mentality that just writes off our nation and says, man, I'm, there's no turning this ship um, and just bunker down and wait for God's judgment. Rather, we, we, we get on board with God. God is using difficulties to alert the nation. Well, we should join him and work to sound the alarm, help alert the nation. Uh, and uh, but but at the same time, recognizing that if that's the method God's using, if it's if it's going to be difficulties, uh, then we may not be we personally may not be the target uh, in that. But because we belong to the nation, we're necessarily going to be affected by it. Uh, God uses things like foreign threats, um, economic distress food crises. You know, these are types of things that if they were to come upon our nation in a, in a meaningful way, it would necessarily affect us. Uh, and so while we're sounding the alarm, I think we also need to seize the moment to shore up our own faith, to better prepare ourselves to stand firm through increasing times of difficulty, recognizing that when the rug gets pulled out from under people, they're usually running around like chickens with their heads cut off, looking for answers, looking for stability, looking for hope. And at that point, those of us who have a firm enough faith to stand firm uh, and, and not join everyone else in the panic in those difficult times, uh, and those of us who understand what God is trying to accomplish, that we could have an incredible ministry, a ministry now, but an increasingly fruitful ministry as difficulty increases in our nation. Now, many of us were not 
we don't have the platform of a, a John the Baptist or even going back to Noah, he, he preached to the whole world is what it says. So we don't have that platform, but we can all carry the heart of a forerunner into our families, our extended families, um, friends, neighbors, whoever. Some of us have maybe somewhat of a teaching platform at church, but wherever we are, I believe uh, what comes out of your book is that we can carry out being a forerunner in that sense of helping people have a life change, helping people be ready for what's coming next. Again, in John the Baptist day, it was Jesus' first coming. In our day, ready for what's coming next, it could, my view, could come one of two ways, and that would be either a much, much greater shaking, but like you just described, we're ready, we're fruitful, we're standing firm. And or it could be Jesus' second coming. And wouldn't that be something for all forerunners for Jesus' second coming? Oh, my goodness, you know. But either way, we're helping people uh, get ready and, and, and so forth. Um, so unfortunately, one area we're not going to be able to get to today is your last section of your book, Timothy. And, and that is becoming prepared. Uh, very helpful stuff. I just wanted to highlight one chapter title, and it's prepared not a prepper. And I think that that's really a, a great angle you have there. I just wanted to throw that out there. But as we end our podcast today, do you have a final word or statement for us? Just to make it clear, our goal isn't to sound the alarm so that people can be safe. Our goal is to sound the alarm so that people can get right with God. And so the goal is to influence a culture in seeing that culture turn back to God, uh, turning their hearts and minds to God, and therefore turning their practice to God. And so fundamentally, being a cultural influencer is changing the way people think about moral issues in our nation so that they change the way they live out those moral issues in community. Uh, and, and half of the book is spent unpacking practical ways to be a cultural influencer starting with ourselves and then moving into the community and also trying to make it realistic uh, that that we're not doing a top-down approach the goal isn't to change the president the goal isn't to change the the makeup of the supreme court the goal isn't to get the right piece of legislation passed rather that we influence cultures by starting in our natural spheres of influence the people who naturally have some degree of respect for us our friends our families our communities our neighbors our coworkers. And we influence those around us, believing that as more and more people get on board with what God is trying to do, that it will have a ripple effect throughout communities, throughout neighborhoods, throughout nations. I just want to encourage everybody to get Heart of a Forerunner by Timothy Zebel. And the subtitle is great. Get this. It says, How to Become a Relevant and Influential Voice in a Wayward Nation. I believe that so captures it. And this book is really going to help you in a number of ways. It's going to help you to discover God's redemptive role for nations, honestly evaluate our nation's perilous trajectory, learn how to verbalize your concerns in culture, learn how to become a cultural influencer, learn how to prepare for difficulty, learn how to minister in all circumstances. You can get your copy of Heart of a Forerunner at forerunnersofamerica.org. There's a free PDF there if you'd like it that way. There's also an option to buy a hard copy from Amazon. And I encourage everyone to get Heart of a Forerunner by Timothy 
Z-Bell, just a brand new release. I think it's helpful in so many ways in light of the day and hour we find ourselves in America, but also these bigger scriptural themes that we went over today. So thanks for joining us on Insights. I look forward to being with you next time on Insights.